This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This is our 101st episode, which is really quite extraordinary. And we have an extraordinary guest and an extraordinary topic. Today, we're going to discuss uh, the evolving relationship between the U.S. military, the Army in particular, and American society. Uh, How should a large world-class military interact with citizens in a democracy? What is the history of this relationship? How has this relationship changed? Uh, How do we understand the crisis we're in around this relationship today? And where are we going from here? Uh, No issue could be more central to our democracy today than this issue. And we have with us uh, a a gentleman who is an expert, an expert based on experience and study. Uh, He's a a good friend uh, and former student of mine, Paul Edgar. And he's now the Associate Director of the William P. Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin, one of the leading centers in the world for the study of national security. He holds a PhD in Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures from the University of Texas at Austin. Before entering academia, Paul Edgar served more than 22 years as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, among many other missions. And there really is a long list of incredible missions that Paul has been on. Uh, he never uh, said no, it seems. He said yes to every mission. <laughs> he deployed to Iraq during the 2006-2007 surge, serving as an infantry battalion operations and executive officer, conducting counterinsurgency and combat operations in both Fallujah and South Babel province. In 2008-2009, he was infantry brigade operations officer and deployed to Afghanistan and was responsible for counterinsurgency operations in three provinces there. After returning from Afghanistan, Paul had a few minutes to catch his breath, and then he became executive assistant to the commander of the Kingdom of Jordan's Special Operations Command. He then commanded the 4th Battalion, 3rd Infantry, and the Old Guard, which, among other things, provides security for the President of the United States and other senior American officials. And in his final military assignment, uh, Paul was a political advisor for the Israeli affairs uh, to the U.S. uh, Security Coordinator in Jerusalem, uh, providing key advice uh, in that important area of the world. Paul is fluent in modern Israeli Hebrew. He's trained to read and conduct research in languages I didn't even know existed before, Akkadian, Hittite, Middle Egyptian, classical Hebrew, Ergaritic, he'll correct my pronunciation (laughs) of that, Aramaic, Syriac, Sumerian, and German. So we have with Paul uh, someone who has studied these issues in the global span of history and experienced these issues. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy, and thanks uh, thanks for your help. Um, not just having me on this program, but uh, getting me to this point. Well, uh, I've learned at least as much from you as you have for me. Uh, And on that subject of learning, we have our learned poet with us, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what is the title of your poem for today's episode? They were supposed to be us. We were supposed to be them. Let's hear it. The soldiers... They go marching by in Saigon, Suez, or through our minds, and somehow they are always wallpapered into anonymous testosterone. Somehow we forget they are not the rebirth of all the flags respectfully burned. Somehow they are heroes, and somehow they are willing to die, and no one really asks why. 
and now they are standing in front of the governor's mansion with rubber bullets, or maybe they are waiting in hot troop trucks rushed over the Potomac, or maybe they are still the poor kids from MASH, confused, just trying to get some strawberry ice cream or forget the dead. Maybe they are just like we are, and maybe they too are waiting for change. But meanwhile, the time clocks keep ticking, and the parking lots fill up, file out. The red tape still clings to office buildings and fortresses like lasers to be dodged. And it is nearly impossible to get health care, but easy to stoke fear. And we are all still waiting here to forgive the lost, won, fought, and overfought wars. And maybe they are the consumptive 20-year-old in a San Antonio bed, recovering so they can find themselves at war with their own homes. Or maybe they are the general with buttons on his overcoat, waiting in the rain to do something more than silence. I don't know. The soldiers have always been something we can't understand, and so we choose to make them into living pledges of allegiance so we can forget sacrifice. And we make them into sufferers or killers so we can forego complicity. And we choose the generals for statesmen so we can ignore the death lists. We were always supposed to be them. They were always supposed to be us, with loyalty to ideals, not ideologues, and faith in our virtue, willingness to be governed. Always supposed to be us, our children we were sending to war. And yet now we are reliant on strangers not to carry out orders, sweet-talking civility from the soldiers, trying to beg peace from the guys with the guns. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about how the military in the United States became much larger and much more complicated than the founders envisioned it. Uh, how, in the end, uh, it became a military that did not consist of ordinary citizens from all walks of life, and it changed into a professional standing military that today uh, dominates political discourse. And and you see that as problematic, Zachary. Yeah. Paul, um, it seems to me this is a tension that's been built into our system from the start, right? right. Uh, a democracy with a strong military. How do you think about that as, as a soldier and as a scholar? Well, for, uh, for several decades now, um, I have, uh, I've been educated and trained to think of the citizen soldier, the, uh, that all of us are citizen soldiers. And I've seen yes. people work this out individually and collective in, in, in different ways, sometimes in, in, in contrasting ways and surprising ways. But there is this connection that, uh, that we cannot dissolve. Even, even though we have professionalized the military, it's still very powerful. Um, it, it perhaps is not what it ought to be, or arguably is not what it ought to be. Um, and it has taken a, a turn for the unexpected. Um, but it's still there. We still think of ourselves as uh, citizen soldiers that we're both and, um, uh, and that we are involved with the political process, although we don't dominate or take over the political process, that we participate in the political process the way most people do in most of the ways that other people do. But, uh, uh, but at the same time, um, we tend to be quieter um, uh, where other people feel uh, or, or, and are able and are legally able um, to uh, to be louder about uh, about certain uh, certain topics, uh, certain issues. Right, and it it seems this this tension that you point to so well. I mean, it's it's there from the start with a figure like George Washington, right. and carries through our history with figures like Dwight Eisenhower and others. Uh, those who are respected in some ways, revered because of their military service, their sacrifice, their commitment to the public, their model of citizen soldier behavior. 
but then at the same time, be, they, they become political leaders and their ideas become politicized. Yes. Um, and so how how does one how does one walk that line? How do you think about that when when you think back on your own experiences in very politicized environments? Okay, so so I've got a good example. Um, I've got a good example, and I and I don't think that this uh, I don't think that this this may come across as uh, as insubordination. I don't I don't think it does though. So, <laughs> so I'm sure it doesn't. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't. So, um, so in Iraq, uh, so this was in 2004 in Iraq, and I was uh, I was in the Coalition Provisional Authority, and I was there in the in the um, late winter, early spring when things really started to come apart at the seams, Sadr city exploded, Fallujah exploded. Um, and, um, and a, a handful of us, um, started talking in terms of insurgency and counterinsurgency. And, um, and secretary Rumsfeld, um, at that point in time, uh, w- was not receptive to that kind of language and that kind of framework. But we knew that was going on, and so that's the approach that we took. We may have called it something else, um, but we but we responded in a way that we thought was uh, was most productive um, for 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 what our end state was, or at least the best that uh, that people could describe our our leaders could describe our end state. So we were acting in a way that, uh, and acting in a way that was most productive for that end, even if that went uh, to to some degree explicitly, at least against the language of, of Rumsfeld, if not, you know, much more than that. So, and that's a responsibility to, uh, you know, it reflects a deep responsibility um, to the president, to um, to the people of the United States, that we've got a role that we've been given. Um, that we're responsible for. And we want to carry that out faithfully and sometimes, strangely, sometimes carrying out that role faithfully is not necessarily consistent, at least with the rhetoric um, of, uh, of senior leaders. Right. So, so that's, that's kind of a, um, you know, I hope that that's a useful example. It's it's a very useful example. It's very insightful, and 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 as you know, you know those sorts of examples come up with every generation, uh, where there's a national mission and a national interest, and at times those who are charged to serve that national interest in the military and in other organizations uh, have to choose whether they are going to go along with some of the politicized side roads and barricades that are placed in the way, or whether, as you described, they're going to place the mission ahead of that. That's not being um, political. That's actually trying to transcend the politics. Right, right. No, I think that that's, I think that's fair to say, but it's also a slippery, a slippery slope, right? Is that, uh, that you can turn that around um, for your convenience as well. And so, uh, and so how do you, how do you maintain that fine line where, where what you're doing is truly faithful, um, even if it's not always aligned with uh, with uh, with rhetoric, so right, right, and and what does it mean? This has come up a lot, uh, and I think in helpful ways in the last week or two. What does it mean when we talk about those in the military from the beginning in our country through today? Every officer, every soldier, uh, giving an oath to the Constitution. What does that mean? That your oath is to the Constitution and not to a particular individual? Right. Well, well, I think that. Uh, that it means that under certain circumstances, we would be willing to disobey leaders 
if they were truly telling us to do something unconstitutional. And that, again, that's a very, that's a very difficult um, line to, to define. Um, it, it's not, uh, it, there's always going to be at least a little bit of subjectivity to that. So, uh, but it's, but I think that's, a, that's the, that's the sum of it, right? And you see that, um, uh, you see that tension with every administration. Uh, somebody will say, this is unconstitutional, I will not do this. And usually the, these numbers are small. And oftentimes these, uh, oftentimes I think they're wrong and that they are demonstrated wrong over legal proceedings. Um, but it, it's, uh, at least as far as I can remember, it has come up at least since President Clinton. Um, in every single administration, someone has said, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to do what the president and the, the uh, officers appointed over me have told me to do uh, because it's unconstitutional. Um, so, so you see it reflected, again, sometimes well and sometimes perhaps not so well. Uh, since uh, really the end of World War II, we've seen a real disconnect develop between the leaders uh, who are choosing whether we go to war or where we fight and those who are actually serving in the military. How do you bridge this divide, mainly in, in terms of the fact that uh, fewer and fewer of those in power have served in the military or right. have children who've served in the military? Right. So, so um, and this is another, you know, this is another uh, tricky question because sometimes you have people like uh, like FDR, right? That uh, Roosevelt, uh, he didn't have any kind of deep military experience, um, but somehow he did very very well in in our biggest conflict ever, right? Right. Um, but then at the same time, experience is a great teacher. So um, so you have uh, you have people like Eisenhower, right? Or, or people like uh, uh, George H. W. Bush, who's whose experience um, at war significantly and constructively, positively shape their, uh, uh, their leadership and decisions and policies um, when, they are, uh, when they're in uh, positions of uh, civilian political power. So, um, so, so there's not a clean answer, right? There's not a clean answer that, uh, um, that military experience always makes you a better political leader, Although we've seen it happen sometimes, um, I, I think perhaps most importantly, we develop. And this is, you know, this is this is uh, Machiavellian um, that uh, that it's important for leaders to really study these things, so so that they don't fall, you know, they don't fall for the the easy tricks, right? The, the war war is a great humiliator, um, uh, and uh, and we can all stumble into, um, into its trap. And, um, and the more you understand it, both by study and by experience and by learning from, you know, from other people's experience, talking to veterans, the more talking to, talking to people who have experienced war from other countries and wars that we haven't participated in, um, trying to understand, uh, war in its, um, in its breadth and depth, um, hopefully, you know, enables us to have more sensitive decision making when it's when it's our time to face uh, those tensions and to ratchet up or ratchet down or, or uh, do one thing or another. 
That's so well said. I love your line. War is a great humiliator. It's 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 at the core of what Clausewitz and William Tecumseh Sherman are both right. saying in their own in their own very different ways. That it looks very different in practice than what you lay out on paper. And uh, having that experience is is so significant, and certainly was for Eisenhower and George H. W. Bush, as as you said. Uh, but but Paul, do do you worry that the the divide, the sociological divide? between those who uh, are leaders of civilian society, and I don't just mean in politics, I mean in the business world as well, and those who serve in the military, uh, very very different groups now in many, many parts of our country, that that can create a certain degree of hostility and that that can lead to um, difficulties in managing the relationship. And I think about that particularly when we're dealing with uh, protests and certain leaders who are calling for the military to step in and um, take sometimes violent action against protesters. Right. I, so so I'll try to um, hit uh, what I detect as two separate questions uh, separately. Yes, it is. Yes, so, yes. so first, this is where I think that there is a disconnect, um, is... Uh, is not, uh, uh, and I may, I may eat my words on here on this, right? But I think the bigger disconnect between um, the experience of, of uh, military work, the experience of war, and senior leaders making decisions to use, uh, you know, to, to use military, um, uh, their, their tool of the military uh, or not, um, that that division is actually less problematic than the one between the military, the citizen soldier, and the citizen citizen. Um, and, and this is why I think that. And I, I don't, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have, uh, I'm not a political scientist, so I can't give you uh, hard data. It's it's just my my sense of things is that citizen the, that our leaders are responsible to our citizens, and if our leaders are using the military um, in a way that does not reflect the will of, of the people, um, that never registers because the people are not connected to the military, the military experience, or, or even they don't understand where we are and what we're doing all the time. That's almost a full-time job for any civilian is to try to keep up with, with the U.S. military and what it's doing on, you know, on any given day. Um, much less, not just what they're doing, but what it is that they're supposedly doing that for. So, so that is the, um, that is a divide that I worry about. Um, and it's actually, you know, I, and I don't have any solutions. I've been struggling with this, Jeremy. We've talked about it a couple of times for, um, for, for six or six years or, or more is how do we, um, how do we engage Americans, not simply in domestic issues that are important to them, that are right in front of their face, but in this one as well, on a, on a globally deployed military who I would argue is generally doing um, ourselves a favor and the world a favor. Uh, maybe favor is not a, a, an ideal word for it, so, so please forgive me for that if, if that's the, not, not the best word, but, uh, but you understand what I'm saying. Sure, um, sure. And um, if they don't understand that, if they don't agree with it, if they're if they're ignorant of it, so that they can't participate in the in our political processes in a way that influences it, um, then I think we become unhinged. Some people would say we already are, um, and, and I and I appreciate those arguments. I, I don't think that we necessarily are, 
but uh, uh, but then we can become unhinged because, uh, and we're not talking about the use of, of military on U.S. soil here. We're talking about U.S. you know military elsewhere in the world. Um, that um, uh, then we can be used um, in any number of ways, which which may not be consistent with uh, uh, with who we are, with what we believe, um, with where we want to be spending our money. Um, and where we want to be spending our lives, even if even if the lives we are spending are relatively few, they're all precious. Um, so, so that's that's the disconnect that I do worry about, and I wish I wish I had a solution, and it is something that I've been thinking about, and I continue to think about. Um, maybe I'll come up with something someday. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, so so the second question is, um, I'll, I'll restate it. I'll restate okay. it. So. To, to, to what extent does the divide that, that you've elucidated so well here uh, in the sort of daily understanding of citizens and the reality of American military deployments around the world, to what extent does that divide or disconnect um, pose dangers uh, when we have uh, political leaders of different kinds who seek to use the military at home, either directly to okay. deploy it right. or, or even symbolically? Uh, for political reasons at home, and we've seen evidence of both in abundance in the last few weeks. Right. So I think. So I think what we've seen, or uh, my interpretation of uh, of what we see right now, this particular relationship, um, some people might interpret the the disconnect as a violent danger. Right. That the the military has become so separated from um, from uh, sort of average civilians, average civilian life that. Um, that applying that force, and when I say that, I mean in a very personal way, not not in a command to go apply force, but for me to shoot you, right? For me to shoot that person in front of me, for me to hurt that person in front of me, because I've been told to go um, to go into uh, you know uh, into an area where there's rioting or an area where there's peaceful demonstration or, or whatever it may be. Um, so so. Uh, some people would might say that um, that it aggravates the likelihood or increases the probability that um, that violent interaction would occur because of that disconnect. I I think that what we've seen is actually the opposite, and I and I couldn't really explain why, but I'll tell you what I, what I think I see is that there's such an immense respect for the military. Um, because people don't know sort of in some ways the banality of what we do. And I, and I, banal, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean in a common way that in some ways, this is the common work of the common people, um, the citizen soldier, um, that, uh, that citizens think so highly of the military that when the military does show up in order to, uh, you know, theoretically when the military does show up in order to put, down a problem within the United States that everyone sort of backs down, maybe even when they shouldn't. Okay. Not, not, and I'm not talking about uh, violent protesting, although, um, I think in some cases, I, I do not think that we're there now. Um, I think in some cases that, uh, that violent protesting can be, um, uh, legitimate. I just, I, but I don't think that we're there. I don't think we're even, we're even close. Um, so, um, at the same time, I think that, there, there really is a powerful ethos of 
roots of this idea of citizen soldier or, you know, that we are them within the military. We are not separate from them, that we are them. We come from them. We are, co- we are going back to them. Um, and, and so I think that that makes uh, today's service members, today's soldiers, uh, airmen, Marines, uh, sailors, that uh, it makes that it will make them very, very reticent to employ force and and to really think very hard about what they've been told to do um, as they are preparing to do it. You know, one of the things that we've talked about, Jeremy, is this sort of this this trust, what I, what I would call sort of trust in different directions, right? That that as as uh, as a service member, I will do anything you tell me to do as long as what you tell me to do is constitutional, is legally and morally right. Um, now, I, I have often done things that I thought were not smart, right? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> uh, I have often done things that, uh, that I thought could be done a better way, handled differently. Of course. Um, but I, I have never... Personally, and, I, and and some people really would would certainly will disagree with me, but I personally don't feel like I've ever been told to do anything unconstitutional or um, illegal or immoral. So, um, so I so I feel personally that I've never been confronted with that moment, right? But but I think it also is very much in people's hearts and minds that uh, um, that this is a theoretical possibility, and that that. Um, when it when it moves out of the theoretical, I, I really need to uh, to be prepared to wrestle with it. And, and so maybe this this is all a way of bringing us to where we are today. Why this history is so important. I know you've you've taken this knowledge and experience, and you've talked to uh, many uh, soldiers, many officers who have been involved in the past few days in very difficult decisions, right? Uh, can you right. walk us through their thinking, those who were deployed to Washington and then returned to base, those who were in positions to uh, give orders or not give orders? Uh, can, can you share how this, this, this background that you've elucidated so well, how that's, how that's played out in front of our eyes? Right. Well, I think, uh, I think a few things. So, so first, the, um, the soldiers that were deployed to the, to the national capital region um, you know, I, I think uh, Attorney General Barr was uh, was accurate when he, he described um, precisely what uh, what had happened with them um, on Face the Nation this this last weekend. Um, is that they were moved into a, a position where they were ready, right? Uh, but uh, uh, they were never deployed, um, and uh, and I think that there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of tension and, and discomfort, not, not disobedience. Okay. But a lot of tension and discomfort and, and discomfort all the way up. And you can see it in his face. Um, in my opinion, all the way up to the secretary of defense, Mark Esper is that, uh, is that this is a, um, this is a very serious moment. Um, maybe we'll need to use force. Maybe we won't. Um, but let's, be very, very reticent to use it. Um, and at a personal level, let me be very, very reticent to use it unless I'm certain it's, uh, it's necessary. Right. So, um, and, and I think that there has been a lot of, uh, again, um, 
from uh, from far away, I, I do sense and feel relief um, when all of the, or I sensed and felt uh, relief from those involved uh, when they redeployed, um, that, uh, um, that they weren't necessarily going to be tested with that question, that very difficult question um, at this moment in our history. And, and, and hopefully, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we won't uh, have to get there uh, again. So where do we go next? How do we avoid relying on military solutions first at home and abroad? And how do we rebuild trust between civilians and the military? Right. Um, well, so, so I think that there is trust between civilians and the military. I think what we're seeing right now is, uh, is distrust between civilians and law enforcers. Um, and, and there's, you know, there are some, some important parallels, uh, useful parallels, I think. And um, I, I don't know if you remember the, um, the incredible job that law enforcers did back um, at the, uh, um, the Boston Marathon um, bombing in um, 2013. Did I get the year right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so I, I happened to, to be there uh, shortly after that. Um, when the whole city got locked down, not because of coronavirus, but because the law enforcers had, you know, had a lead on, um, on who did this. And law enforcers came from uh, all corners of the state and uh, in all quarters of, of the nation even um, to help in this search. And so we thought so highly, at least in Boston, and I think the whole country did, for for um, you know, for multiple days, this search went on. Uh, Bostonians and uh, um, and others uh, in the in the area stayed in their home. I had a number of meetings with uh, with professors that got canceled because because uh, um, we couldn't move. Um, and and uh, and they caught them, and we thought very very highly of them then. And um, and we have we have and we continue to unacceptably have. Uh, incidents um, uh, like uh, um, like we've had uh, like we've had recently with uh, with George Floyd, right? Right. Um, so uh, so we've had incidents like uh, like this terrible terrible incident with George Floyd. Too many of them, and now the uh, our perspective of law enforcers is 180 degrees. And, uh, and, and we need to dial back from that. I'm not saying dial back from change. I'm not saying dial back from and, and accept things the way they were. But we need to understand, I think, just like the military, just like we have come to appreciate the military, that we need to continue to appreciate our law enforcers, understand that we need to be part of them. Um, they need to be part of us, that we need to be integrated much more closely in many, and, and this, this works in many places, but it doesn't work in others. And um, as you become, as you move those two groups closer together, seeing eye to eye uh, in practical ways on the beat, in city council meetings, in separate committee meetings, and, um, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, some places you can still do ride alongs with uh, with your local policemen to, to do things like that. Uh, reaching out from both sides to connect, um, especially in those neighborhoods um, that receive uh, the, the brunt 
of police violence. I think that that's the way that you build, that you rebuild. That's the, that's where you go from here. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's where you have to move one way or another. Um, that's where, where you have to move after, uh, after the demonstrations are over. Right. Uh, and I think that is possible. I think that is doable. I think it is. Uh, I don't. I think there are other solutions to add to it, but but fundamentally is the the connection between um, the police themselves, or or if you decide to go with some other form of um, of law enforcement. I can I can understand that people want to try different things now, and uh, but you're going to run into the same problems. So how right. do you anticipate those and get ahead of those? And it's right. this, it's, it's the, the people who are doing the law enforcing need to be intimately connected with, uh, with the public that they are serving. Um, it, it, seems, Paul, it seems, Paul, that the um, issue of race, which yes. we haven't talked about explicitly, but which we should yes. obviously talk about, that that, that, that is a, a, a challenge for both law enforcement and for the military. Uh, on the one hand, the military has traditionally been one of the leading institutions in making use of talent from um, different backgrounds. Right. And uh, there are many stories, Colin Powell being one of many, of uh, disenfranchised, mistreated groups, vulnerable groups, right. uh, using the military as a source of mobility for themselves and for their yes. community. And right. That's definitely true. But there's also a lot of evidence, as you know better than I do, of uh, terrible attitudes that form in these organizations, white supremacy, right. uh, religious intolerance, or intolerance to those who don't belong to a certain evangelical faith in, in some parts of the military. I mean, so so right. how do we navigate that? And that's obviously a, a big issue for law enforcement as well. Yeah, right, right. So so first, I would say that there that there is, you know, there, there certainly is, um, there certainly is, uh, is active racism in the United States military. I think, you know, what I, and what I'm describing as active racism is somebody who actually thinks that, uh, that people who are different, um, that, uh, that, uh, black Americans or, or other, um, others serving are, um, are lesser than they are. Okay. Um, I think that kind of, uh, racism is, um, is relatively small. I'm not saying it's unimportant that we don't need to address it, that we don't need to be looking out for it all the time. Um, but in my experience, um, I have, I've seen very little of that. Um, I think the bigger problem is, and, and this, and this is not simply an institutional problem. This it's one of, uh, just entry into the military, right? Um, we are, we are taking, um, I don't want to say it's an average slice of America because it's not necessarily average. Um, Sometimes in some ways it's above average in some ways it's below average. Um, but we're taking a slice of America and, and everything, um, all of the tensions within it and putting it in an institution and, and forming it and, and, and changing it. Um, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that um, whatever problems whatever challenges or difficulties or, or pathologies um, that come in automatically go away. Um, right. And so, and, and so one of the things that I'm, you know, the main thing that I'm trying to address here is what I would say is, um, is, uh, is simply the struggle 
of living within a majority culture uh, when you're a minority. And, uh, and, so, and some people will, will automatically say that that, that, that is racism. Um, I, I have problems using that term um, in that context, because in my mind, an ism is something that you fundamentally believe, right? That you, that you believe in your heart of hearts that this is, that this is right. Um, but there is an incredible disadvantage that, um, for, for those minority cultures. Uh, that go unseen, um, and uh, and so what? So what is the solution? The solution is um, is is active leadership, is active um, conversation, is active listening um, to to what else is is uh, is going on. What what experience am I not tuned into? Um, and if that experience is a negative one, if it's a, if, if it's one that is de- deconstructive of, of both people, mission, unit, et cetera, um, then, then how do I address it and change it? Um, so, so I, I think that in some ways, um, and I, I don't want to get too far off the subject, but, uh, in some ways I think that this gets us to the end of policy and um, and the effectiveness of policy and gets to the root of who people are of character formation. Um, you know, Tocqueville said, uh, and and this is to some degree a paraphrase that America is great because America is good. And I and I would take that a step further and say, America is great because Americans are good. Um, and if Americans cease to be good, America will cease to be great. And so, if we do not form in ourselves daily um, uh, a better and better character that is understanding of others and makes space for others, um, then, uh, you know, then we, we hit a wall. But I also think that that's the answer. I think that it's, it's, it's character formation. It's personal. um, It, it's collective in a sense, but it's also not something that you can uh, police up with policy precisely. Right. So, right. And that, that I think brings us to our last question, uh, where we always like to close, which is how we can use this, um, deep knowledge of history and understanding of our present to build a better future. One of the good things that has certainly come out of this terrible moment is we've seen, uh, forceful, explicit statements from military leaders, as well as leaders of various other elements of our society, even the NFL, uh, strong statements um, against racism, strong statements, not just that racism is bad, but that we have to do active things, as you just said, Paul, in our institutions to encourage anti-racism, to encourage inclusion, to recognize how to bring out the better elements of our character, or what Lincoln would call the better angels of our nature. what do you think our listeners can do? Those who are concerned about these issues, those, the majority of our listeners are not in the military. What can they do and what can military leaders help them to do to help the military on this road? Right. Well, you know, this is a, um, and I'm going to start um, with, a, with a program that is not accessible to, to everybody, unfortunately, but, uh, but it can be duplicated in, in, um, in many places. So, um, in, in response to the, uh, the Kent state killings, right over, uh, the, so, the, so this is, you know, this is classic 
civil rights, um, anti-Vietnam era history. Right. Um, May 1970. So, so students at, uh, at Kent State uh, are, are killed in, in the whole, I don't know, the de- I can't remember the details of, of how everything unfolded. But the a National Guard shot the students. The students were right. protesting, and the National Guard opened fire on them. Right. Well, but uh, I'm actually getting even more into the details. Right. That this is what occurred. But if you try to reconstruct uh, precisely from eyewitness accounts, from from those participating, etc., it's almost impossible to pin it down to who did what when. Right. So, in response to uh, the altercation between protesters and in uh, the National Guard at Kent State, um, the U.S. Army uh, War College started sending out its students each spring to campuses in order to connect with students and to try to um, to, to try to open up dialogue, uh, to try to meet to to give them opportunities to meet students and students opportunities to meet these uh, you know lieutenant colonels and, and colonels. Um, at the uh, sort of the back end of their military career, and also these who are going on to uh, stay another ten or fifteen years as general officers. So, and that's a that's a form of sort of preventive, what you, we might call preventive de-escalation, right? So we're personalizing both the military and those who, at least at, you know, at the time, those who made up the protesters. We're making connections where there were none before, personal connections between citizens uh, where there were none before. And so I think that's something that is uh, that is possible, both in terms of the military and in terms of law enforcement. So um, the point of the program is of that program is not to build bridges, but right. you can use it to build bridges. Right. Yeah, of so um, and I think that's and so that's what my suggestion is, is that we find ways to build bridges between these organizations so that, um, and that we, and that we really listen to one another so that yeah. we understand, um, in, in most cases, we are really on the same side. Right. Well, this is, this is terrific. Paul, you've given us uh, so much insight, uh, both from your experience and from your study and helped us to recognize that the relationship between the military and our democracy is always a, a relationship filled with tensions. It's always a dynamic relationship. And it's a relationship that always needs curating and tending. It's not the institutions alone that do the work. It has to be the, the work of individuals, of citizens to be attentive to these issues and to be in dialogue about these issues. Right. And one of, one of the good things that's come out of this moment, this terrible moment, is that we're having this, this right. dialogue. Uh, Paul, thank you for in your throughout your career, and especially now uh, as an educator, you're you're fostering these kinds of conversations. They mean they mean so much. And Zachary, thank you as always for your poem that I think encapsulated many of the challenges, the frustrations, and and the concerns that that so many of us share. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy. 